Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Sakib Ali is producing the show, but sitting out uh, after uh, pulling a lot of late nights at the Australian Open. Um, so... Uh, we had Novak Djokovic winning his 10th Australian Open Championship, his 22nd major title, uh, sweeping away Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, winning a couple of tiebreak sets. Hey, Djokovic winning the big key points in a major final. Get out of here. Never seen that before. Uh, and then in the women's final, uh, uh, an absolutely wonderful match. Elena Rabakina and Arena Sabalenka trading howitzers in a, in a match just you know throwing punches boxing without the blood big babe tennis hitting hard and keeping the ball within the court just a magnificent display of power tennis from both but arena sabalenka who really looked like the best player at this tournament uh throughout uh, just showing the extra measure of poise and composure and focus that had you know, been building and improving over the past few years, but not quite enough to get over the hump. You know, Iga Sviantek stopped her 6-4 in the third in the U.S. Open semis. Uh, you know, she lost to Pliskova uh, in, in a Wimbledon semifinal. You know, she was getting close in recent years, but she finally gets over the hump, and wins her first major championship. So some great stories at the Australian Open and here to help us unpack them especially the two finals, you know, looking at these two championship matches uh, and all of the tension points and, and tactical components involved, our in-house analyst, Mert Ertunga. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, Murtov's T-Desk. Uh, just, you know, a, a tennis analyst beyond compare. We're so lucky to have him uh, to help us review the Australian Open women's uh, and men's singles finals and these two tournaments that have unfolded over the fortnight in Melbourne. So Mert, welcome back to the show. And as we bring you in, um, just start where you'd like in terms of these two singles finals that you watched. Uh, I, 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 you know, you could, you could start with Djokovic over Sitsipas. You can start with Sabalenka winning her first title. Let's just dive into these two matches, start wherever you'd like in terms of our conversation today. Sure. Delighted to be here again with you guys. Uh, well, I'm going to start with the, um, with the women's side with Rybakina and Sabalenka because um, I uh, personally picked Rybakina to win before the match. And I thought that she had the tougher path to, uh, to the finals and she played terrific and beat some quality opponents. Not that Sabalenka didn't beat quality opponents, but I thought that Rybakina came to the final more um, proven, more, more, more tough ready, so to speak. And, uh, and the way the match started, uh, it continued that way. Uh, Rybakina, in my opinion, won the first set 6-4, but it felt like a 6-2 or a 6-1 set. And uh, in the beginning of the second set, she had a break point and uh, to, to go up again. I thought for about a set and few three or three games, I'd say, Rybakina looked like uh, she was going to run away with it. And then, uh, you know, uh, this is where you have to take your hat off to Sabalenka. I know people like to look at the big picture and uh, see Sabalenka from a point of view of uh, it's been a long time coming. She, she beat her demons. 
she's she's won so many titles yet never wanted won a major and etc and there's that big picture macro narrative about uh, Sabalenka winning this tournament that makes it uh, magnificent to talk about but I'm more impressed by the it with within the match itself the way she turned it around the way she uh she turned kind of a hopeless situation with a 180 degree turn and then leveled the playing field in the second set by keeping the ball more by keeping the ball more in play uh, we can get to that in a minute but then in the third set to make a 180 degree turnaround and although she won that set 6-4 i thought she was clearly the better player in the third set and that could have been a 6-2 set or a 6-1 set and i would not have been surprised she was she, she was for sure the better player in the third set and it was only a matter of time before she broke rebakina's serve and went up a break which was the deciding uh factor in in that third set so you the way she turned that match that specific final match without you know with with the with the thought that she hasn't won a major yet against a recent major winner from a very uh, difficult almost a desperate situation after the first set into a, a complete dominance in my opinion of of the of the third set it only got close because because of the quality of Rybakina and her willingness to not just lay down that it got that close so uh, let's take all let's give all praises to uh, to Sabalenka for what she has accomplished and uh, you know we the, the people talk about her double faults and everything yes she did have some double fault problems in this match too especially in the first set but uh, she was getting outplayed by by Rybakina who was cutting the points short hitting with pinpoint accuracy serving big not giving Sabalenka any chance and Sabalenka kept on hanging in there and and she just ran for every ball and in the begin and in the beginning of the third set towards the middle of the third set she started getting a lot of balls back she started getting some service winners of her own and it was Rybakina who found, who found herself no longer able to finish points quickly and getting into the seven eight shots eight shot bullet rallies in which Sabalenka ended up getting the upper hand in terms of power and placement by the by the time sixth or seventh shot came around and that put some doubts into into Rybakina's head and she started going for more and uh, and 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 by, and by the time the third set came around Rybakina was having to hit uh, phenomenal shots just to just to win points and winners most of the time because uh, Sabalenka was no longer giving anything away while at the same time creating winners of her own she was getting to play more on top of the baseline and it was Rybakina who was doing more of the moving and there were some there were a couple of points in the third set where Rybakina looked like the ball she didn't think the ball was going to come back and it did and she wasn't really ready for 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 that ball to come back and um you know this it's just incredible what a what a you know rise from the ashes type of performance that uh, Sabalenka put put forth in this match alone for, you know from the first set into the third set one thing that really shines through in your comments Mert is that you know Sabalenka's defense was a, a critical central component of her victory and I can't help but think of and I'm not trying to compare the two as players but just that you know when we when we when we think of players when when the when the average fan the tennis fan thinks of players you know certain associations come to mind and certainly with Sabalenka the, the 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 most tennis fans think of her offense. They think of her big game, and you know one yes. thing that Sakib and I talked about uh, on our Twitter Spaces show on Sunday, right after uh, the the men's final, and you know wrapping up the tournament, 
uh, was that, you know, Sabalenka was hitting her forehand in the mid 80s miles per hour in the third set, which, you know, is huge. Like she was hitting the ball really, really hard. And it's just very natural to just immediately go to Sabalenka's ferocious, big hitting and think of that as the first and main component of her game. But in, in all of that, her defense gets overlooked. Like we do not discuss. And when, and when Sakib and I listen to other tennis podcasts, like when the discussion goes to Sabalenka, it always goes to her offense. It always goes to the quality of her ball striking. Uh, her defense does not get talked about very much. How, how much has her defense evolved? It obviously was at its very best in this match against Rabakina, but like, did we see this progression? Like, could, could you see this as a tennis analyst, as a tennis coach? Could you see this progression coming or, or were you really surprised by just how well Sabalenka defended in this match? Um, uh, Matt, no, I don't think so because uh, Sabalenka, first of all, is, is quick on the court. She takes big steps and at the same time, she's quick. So she gets to a lot of balls. And, uh, you know, for, for, for her, it's a matter of uh, perhaps, you know, uh, gauging or uh, a balancing act between how hard she wants to counter punch while she's on the run. And I thought in this match, particularly in the second set, she balanced that out well, because when Rybakina was hitting these big, big, you know, big shots to the corners or, or away from Sabalenka, she was doing a good job of getting there and sending them back deep, putting, putting back Rubakina on her back foot, maybe, and put and forcing Rubakina to hit a big shot from maybe, uh, you know, two or three meters behind the baseline, which then gave Sabalenka an opportunity to step forward, and that's when she would use her offense. So she needed defense to be able to use use her offense. And uh, yes, it does get overlooked a little bit, you know. The, and I, I would point to, you know, people talk about how hard these two women were hitting. And I would point to an early Wimbledon final between Lindsay Davenport and Venus Williams. Uh, I can't remember the year, 2003 or 2004, but uh, it was a phenomenal match that went the distance in the third set and Venus Williams won. And I think Venus won that match because of that, because because she was just a tad superior to Lindsay Davenport in terms of chasing down balls, getting them back deep, and then taking the offense when she finally did get, get a chance to push Davenport back a little bit in those 9, 10, 11, 12 shot rallies that were, that were just phenomenal. And then she was able to, you know, step into the court and f- finish the, the point herself, which then pushes your opponent to think, wow, I better go for bigger shots while I have the chance. And I think that's the mindset that uh, she forced Rybakina to be in. But Rybakina had to go for bigger and bigger shots to smaller and smaller targets. And, and she started making some mistakes of her own, which then, you know, but I, I think... Rubakina's confidence level on how well she could finish the point was a lot less in the third set than it was in the first set. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, one of the really big talking points about Arena Sabalenka over the years, you're, you're very aware of this, Mert, as is everyone else in the global tennis community, is that you know, the, the narrative was Sabalenka doesn't have a plan B, that you know she had a one-track way of playing, Uh, you know, one central approach. And if that one approach didn't work, you know, she was up a creek without a paddle. She was lost. What was this? Did this match really destroy that narrative? Or, you know, some might say, oh, Sabalenka was just hitting bigger and bigger as the match went on. 
it wasn't so much finding a plan B, it was executing her plan A better. How, how would you uh, come down on that particular question? Yeah, I, I would have a hard time uh, accepting that, that she was just, she just did her plan A better because she had to play, she, you know, she had to, uh, she, if her plan A is restricted to just hitting bigger and bigger, this is not how she won this match because uh, she, she was getting out hit and outpowered in the first set in almost every department. And just like we, we talked just a second ago, she was, she was able to use her footwork and quickness to get more balls in play in Rubakina's big shots. And then she would revert to her plan A, which is, a, which is coming up with a big shot to hit, to hit a winner of her own. But you have to be able to get to that stage in the rally, within the rally. And, uh, and to get to that stage within the rally, she, her solution was not just to hit bigger and bigger because she was chasing down balls in those fir- first two or, two or three shots. So, no, I think this was, this was a good match to see that she can do something other than just offense and hitting the ball big. And one thing that people overlook about um, Sabalenka is uh, but anyone who's been in a tournament in the player's area or uh, coach's area or just who, you know, who gets to see her during a tournament or, or in, uh, probably the same in practice sessions is she doesn't leave the gym. I mean, she's constantly doing stuff in the gym, Sabalenka. She, she, she's, she's her fitness is very important to her. And uh, she, throughout the day, if, if you're in the player's area and she happens to be playing the tournament, uh, she'll be in and out of the gym all the time. This is not someone who just comes and does some gym work for 45 minutes a day and then leaves and you and you never see her again there you know she does her one session a day she's in and out of there all the time and uh and i think that fitness paid off definitely yeah it was striking to notice in the third set that sabalenka was taking a lot of deep breaths like like she you know and she was pouring everything into the match and yet she wasn't getting worn down because as we know she had the upper hand throughout that third set Yes. So like she, she was started serving better and better. I mean, our second serves were were great. Yes, but like so, so it was a maximum investment of energy, and yet she looked like she could go five sets if she had to. It it was a very uh, impressive demonstration of her fitness. Matt, are you are, are you trying to rile me up here about the five set situation for for women? Oh, or no, no, that, okay. that just kind of that just kind of okay. spilled out. <laughs> but um, and you know, I think you and I both agree we should have five set women's major finals. I would have I like would have loved to see one or two more sets of that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like that. That's just you know, for if you if you call yourself a major tournament, why why not have the five set final? But we're not. We're not going to go into that. Like, okay. a, like that's been well established. We've been there before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's been well established. It's familiar terrain. Uh, want to unpack what you were talking about just earlier, Mark, because I think it's a great tactical topic for tennis fans to understand a little bit more. So you, you said very clearly that Sabalenka was willing to play defense, get balls back, you know, be a little bit more of a counter puncher instead of playing the first strike tennis that comes very naturally to her and that that was really her adjustment. So it brings up the point, Mert, just as a coach in general, how do you coach a player to, you know, say like, hey, this is how you counterpunch. This is how you play a more defense first style if a first strike approach isn't working. How do you get a player to, you know, kind of rely a little bit more on defense, rely a bit of a little bit more on making balls, just putting them back in play? And yet not and yet making sure that your player isn't like seeding territory because like that, it could easily be a situation where if you get into a defense first mindset, you're not taking the initiative, 
you know, you maybe you allow too much in terms of court position as a coach. How do you teach a player to counterpunch in a way that, you know, for, forces your opponent to hit to smaller targets, forces your opponent uh, to feel more match pressure, but without ceding too much territory, without ceding uh, too much of the initiative on points? As a coach, how do you get your player to, to, to achieve that particular balance? Uh, Matt, every player has a certain tennis identity. In other words, they what you know the the type of uh, identity they put forth on the court. Some are uh, endurance fighters. They keep a lot of balls in play, frustrate the opponent, hit great passing shots, rely on their footwork and uh, conditioning, and uh, wear the opponent out. And just for, with extreme consistency from the baseline, they can win matches. And then there are some players like Sabalenka who um, you know who who like to take the initiative and just go for the, for the big strike and finish the point, you know, the, the, you know, that's, that's her tennis identity. So what you don't want to do is to try to sell a player like Sabalenka for a particular match, the idea that doesn't fit her tennis identity. So you can, you know, if you, if you tell that kind of player, well, in this match, your goal is going to be just to keep the ball in play one more time as compared to your opponent, because she's more likely to miss than you. Well, if she plays against an opponent who can keep the ball, who maybe misses on the 12th or 13th shot, but does keep the ball in play for seven, eight, or nine shots, now you're telling your player to do something in, 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 that's opposed to her tennis identity for about eight or nine shots. That's a lot. And they're in a, they're, they're in a zone that's, not, that's talk completely outside of their comfort zone. And they're going to start missing because it's just, it's just not uh, their tennis identity. So what you, so what you try to sell maybe in, in this case, especially it depends on your opponent, of course. And here her opponent is Rybakina, who also likes to finish the point quick. So the, you, what you try to sell is you try to sell the idea that if you get out hit, that the idea maybe is not to necessarily go for incredible you know, spectacular shots from the corners when you're on the full run, but maybe get those one or two balls back deep in the court. It doesn't have to be to the to the sidelines, but just deep in the court and wait for that second or third shot or at the most fourth shot that you may be able to step just maybe in, inside the baseline or on the baseline or even a meter behind the baseline where you get set with your feet and take the initiative that which is the which is the, that initiative shot is the shot where the point turns around. And we're talking about the, you know, eight, nine rally shots here. So, you, so that's that, perhaps that's what you try to sell to your, to, to your player. You, you say, well, if, if, it go, if the first set ended in a way where you're getting outplayed in these short, big strike points, well, perhaps try to get one or two more shots in. Don't try to go for immediately the big shot on the return, for example, when you when you have to return your back in a serve. Don't try to go for the big winner or don't try to go for the big winner and on, on, our, on our second shot, but perhaps send it back deep with a lot of pace and put her on her back foot. And that one shot that you may get in the rally where you can take the charge and put forth and offer your, your tennis identity, in other words, your, what you're comfortable with, then you take charge and you can even, you know, practice certain shots. Like a maybe if your opponent is mostly expecting a cross court ball, perhaps you, you mentioned, well, you know, on one of those defensive backhands, go deep down the line. She, she might not expect that though. So she'll be off. 
she'll be a little bit off and she'll have to reach to get to that forehand. And then that next shot, you can then start playing the rally the way you, you would like to play. So that this is the this is, these are the types of nuances that you try to, uh, to that you try to bring across, and I think this the second set here in this match is is a good uh, good model of of what uh, what Sabalenka did there with she she played great defense without losing her tennis identity. Nuance is why we have you on our show, Mert. So th- thank you for that. Let, let's now move to the other championship singles final: Novak Djokovic over Stefano Tsitsipas and. I think for a lot of tennis fans, Mert, like it, this was a, you know, tell me something I don't already know match. Like, like what, <laughs> you know, Djokovic wins the big points, Sitsipas's forehand breaks down under pressure. Like we've been down this alley a lot of times. So I guess my, my, my first question to you on this match is what, what new things did we learn? Because there was a lot of old, there was a lot of familiar in this match, what new things came to your mind as you evaluated this match? Yes, Matt, is, is not much. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, Novak is <laughs> Novak is so far ahead of the field here in this tournament. It, I, you know, it's almost like um, you, you know, the score is what six three seven six seven six, but it felt like a six two six two six two match. You, sure did. It's, it's almost like you use you know you started from the beginning and all seven of uh, Novak's matches felt that way he just he just ran through the field and and it and it's to the point where almost I find it more interesting to talk to speculate on the chances of Novak accomplishing the Grand Slam this year for the first wow. time since 1969 Rod Laver rather than going to the ins and outs of this tournament right here or or this okay. final because All it's right, not let's that, do that. Uh, I mean, it's let's not do that. that. <laughs> well, let's not wait. Okay, let's not waste okay. time then. <laughs> okay. So, well, I mean, okay, if I, you're it, like, look, if Mark, if you're going there after the Australian Open, you know, like to me, I think like you don't start that until you've solved the Nadal problem at Roland Garros. But just the fact that you're thinking about that, Mert, that tells me you think Nadal is uniquely vulnerable as his body gets older, as father time really begins to catch up to him. I mean, that must be foremost in your mind that that Nadal is not going to be at the physical level as he gets older. And of course, Djokovic didn't play a full schedule last year because of COVID, uh, you know, prohibitions at various tournaments. So he's physically fresh. That seems to be part of your calculus in terms of why you're already thinking, hey, the Grand Slam is really achievable this year. Yes, it, and the and the reason why I say that is, of course, I, I was going to add a caveat uh, is that unless Rafael Nadal somehow recovers from his injury and gets back to one hundred percent for Roland Garros, or and or Carlos Alcaraz recovers quickly and is one hundred percent by the time you know the, the the few weeks leading up to French Open comes and he enters French Open with one hundred percent and the rest of the majors. You know, unless those two guys are back to one hundred percent, I don't see who's going to who can who can challenge Djokovic, because he's he he just does. I mean, look at look at the final here that he played against Sitsipas. What area of the game was Sitsipas superior? I can't find a single detail where and and let's be I'll, I'll be clear here that this for my for in my view, I don't think Sitsipas played a bad match. I commend him for making this close. Actually, he almost stole the second set. You know, if he won that set point, 
and yep. pocketed that second set six four. That would have been a steal, yep. because because that only happened because at four all. I mean, I'm sorry, at uh, five four in that game on on Novak's serve, Novak had probably the the worst sequence of the match for the for his part. He the reason why Tsitsipas went up thirty forty was because Novak made three errors, uncharacteristic errors for him for his standards. And then at 30-40, what happens? He pull, he plays a great, great point. He finishes it with a forehand winner, a, a point that lasted, what, 12, 13 shots where Tsitsipas never had a chance to step forward. He had, he was playing catch-up the whole time. And uh, and th- th- that's what happened with uh, anybody that Novak played in this tournament. They constantly played catch-up. You know, they're playing, to, to start with, they're playing a, a you know, a, a, a legend. A, 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 a superior legend on Rod Labor Arena, and they're you know it's almost like they start every match a set down anyway, and then and then just the baseline strokes in in movement he's superior with baseline strokes he's superior, and with with even um, uh, creating winners he's superior he's superior in, in serving most of the time I mean he's he's, he's just so much better he was so much better than uh, you know the rest of the field in the finals he he beat Sitsipas. Well, he went five sets with Sissipas at the French Open, but I think he's play, he played better here than than uh, than at the French Open because it's Rod Laver Arena. Now, that's not to say that uh, that he's not going to have off days, but how many off days can uh, or I don't I don't know if he's going to have an off day, but he might have an off set somewhere maybe, and somebody might steal a set. But I, he's he's rallying at a much higher velocity with much more consistency. And with superior depth, by far, by a far margin over any of his opponents. You know, this is why I think unless Rafa or Alcaraz can get back to 100%, I'm not saying they just get back and start playing tournaments. I'm talking in form, an informed version of Rafa at the French has a chance to stop Djokovic from accomplishing the, the Grand Slam. Or even Alcaraz, you know, in form Alcaraz might stop um, Djokovic, but I, I I don't know what uh, who else can can do this. You know, he almost did it uh, in um, in 2021, uh, but he was worn out. You know, by the time that final against Medvedev came around at the U.S. Open, he was worn out. I I think this is a as of January. I'm talking as of January now. This is a this is the clearest case that an argument can be made for a player to accomplish the Grand Slam, like Labor did it in 1969 that I've ever seen, at least in my lifetime. It, it is true that, you know, you don't have the Olympics this year. And I will say, and I've, I've said it many times, that Djokovic should not have played in the Tokyo Olympics. And that really seemed to catch up with him. You know, his overall workload seemed to catch up with him at the U.S. Open uh, against Medvedev. So this year, you do not have that complication in Djokovic's way. It's going to be fascinating to see it play out. And of yes. course, um, like- and I talk, I completely realize it's too early to that. That's an early call. And that's why I'm calling yeah. it speculation, speculation. Yeah. But I think this is the most comfortable I've felt speculating for someone's case for a grand slam at the end of January than ever before. Yeah. Like you, you, you usually don't do this, Mert. And so just the fact that you are doing it, it doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it like notable. Like, you know, your stuff that you're, that you can see the landscape like this, like that is a very bit telling thing about the state of the rest of the ATP tour. So we want, we want to get to 
like the other side of the Austrian Open. So we've talked about the champions, uh, Sabalenka and Djokovic. Now let's look at players who, you know, just in your mind, one or two players who, you know, entered this tournament with a lot to prove, needed to establish themselves, needed to start the season right, and didn't. So let's start on the men's side. I know that you wanted to talk about one player in particular uh, and, and uh, touch on that player and any other men's players uh, who really fell short at this tournament you might be a little bit concerned about going forward. Yeah, I was going to mention Medvedev, but I know you guys talked talked about him already uh, before on, uh, on on Spaces, Twitter Spaces. So Medvedev definitely fell short in this. And I, and, and I also think Shapovalov fell short here. And uh, the reason why I say that is because the, the way he lost to Hurkacz is very discouraging. I, it must be discouraging for him. I, I am a Dennis fan. I, you know, I want him to do well. I like his game. And uh, as a as a fan of the player, I you know I was disappointed, and he must be re- super uh, uh, disappointed himself. You know, it's just getting that to, to that fifth set. You know, I I he goes down two sets, which he probably didn't feel like he should have been down two sets, and then he plays a, you know a great third set and wins a fourth set fairly well, fairly comfortably six one six four, and goes into the fifth set and. Can just cannot get it done on 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 critical two or three points. The 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 one break, the deciding break in the fifth set was decided on Shapovalov having a game point on his serve. And what is one of his big bread and butter plays plays is to hit a good first serve, get that get that totally defensive return in where he can just step inside the court. It's a sitter in the middle of the court and nail the forehand for a winner. He does that for for in his sleep. And, you know, in, in this match, when he has that same shot to get the four all, I believe, in the fifth on his serve, he misses it wide. He misses the forehand wide that he would probably hit in 19 out of 20 times. And then, and then it, he plays a, a poor next point and goes down a break point and loses his serve. And even in the last game where he has a chance to perhaps break her catch and get back on serve to extend the fifth set, again, he, he, you know, it's his error. On on a break point, if I remember correctly, that that uh, that that stopped him from doing it. So you know, it's he's talked about it before himself. You know, we, I'm right there. I, I get to that uh, to that um, to that crucial point, and and, it, and things don't go my way. Uh, and uh, you know, this was yet another example of that. And you know, he's out in the third round, and uh, I think that's just disappointing for him. All right, let's let's take a look at a women's player who really came to Melbourne, you know, needing to show something significant, having a lot to prove, you know, coming out of the off season, entering 2023 and who didn't make the grade. Let's let's look, get a, a at least one player from the women's side, you know, kind of in a similar vein to Shapovalov of men. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go with a couple of players who lost early, uh, not that I was expecting them to win the tournament, but um uh, one of them is Bianca Andreescu. And uh, of whom I'm also a fan. Uh, I, I want her to be. I want her to get back to top five, top ten, and be a dominant player on the women's side because I like her game. And uh, you know, she she starts out this year, and uh, I'm, I know she has high hopes about this year. Maybe finally coming, finally over with um, with his with her injury woes, and um, and then he she wins the first set, and then she loses to Butsa, you know, in a disappointing fashion. You know, two six seven six six four nine seven the tiebreaker in the second set after winning the first set six two, and then loses in the third set, 
And I thought that was one of the biggest uh, shockers of the second round. You know, I thought I thought Andrescu was going to win that match and go on to play Shiontek in the third round. So uh, I know that, I know that. Um, I mean, I feel like that's a that, that was a letdown. I would have uh, liked to see Andrescu have a good tournament or at least win her matches to the point where she lost perhaps to one of the favorites. In which case, it would have been a Shiontek loss in the third in the third round if she if she did lose. So, um, you know, that was a letdown for me, uh, disappointing. Uh, I, and, uh, and I think the other one is in the same vein, Madison Keys. Uh, she lost in the third round. And, uh, you know, I keep, exp- I keep hoping. I, granted, she lost to Azarenka in three sets. But again, the way she, she lost that match, I mean, she won the first set 6-1. And then it's, it's a complete turnaround and loses the next two 6-2-6-1. And... Uh, and you just want Madison Keys. She was seated ten here, and you just want Madison Keys to, at some point, you know, put a string of ten, eleven, twelve great sets together, and just blow her opponents off the court and find herself in the quarterfinals or semifinals. And uh, it didn't happen here either. All right, one last uh, question to explore before we uh, close down the show here, Mert, and that is, you know, the Sviantec loss to Rabakina. How, you know, how concerned should we be? How, how much of a of a ripple effect do you think it will have for Rabakina, for Sviantec, and for the tour? And I and I and while you think about your answer to that question, Mert, one commentator I follow on tennis Twitter expressed the concern that Sviantec. Uh, might get into a Martina Hingis style dynamic where uh, she gets out hit. Like, you know, she had this little window of success, you know, where she was the dominant player on tour. But, you know, for Hingis, then came the Williams sisters and Lindsay Davenport, and they were able to just muscle her off the court. And we saw Sviantek's serve get eaten alive by Rabakina. Do you assign any credence or do you think there's any kind of legitimacy to that notion that Sviantec could basically be the 2020s version of Hingis or do you think that that is a a great overreach just how much uh, concern do you think there should be on team Sviantec coming out of this tournament I would think uh, I I would I would somewhat agree with the idea that things did open up for Sviantec over the last couple of years for her dominance some of the prominent players either retiring in the case of Barty and, uh, you know, players like Osaka uh, pulling off from tennis a little bit. And, uh, you know, Andrescu, for example, with her injuries, et cetera. So, so a case can be made for how things opened up for Shiontek to dominate over the last year and a half or two. But I'm not sure a case can be made to say that, well, now those, that year and a half or two is over. And now you, you're going to have new players come up and, and, uh, and win. First of all, they need to do it over a long period of time. Let's see what happens at the French on clay. You know, will, will Rybakina be, out, be able to out-hit Shriantek and overpower her on clay? Uh, that's a question mark. And, say, uh, and I would say the same thing with, uh, with other power hitters. And Shriantek herself, in my opinion, is a power hitter. So she can, she can actually... St- stay in rallies with the rest of the people. And I would argue that she, she has a, she has a higher uh, rotation rate on the ball on, on her top spin accelerations than most other players that we mentioned. So um, no, I would, uh, I would be very reluctant to say that uh, the window for her is closed. I think she's going to remain 
a top, uh, maybe not the dominant number one that she was until now, but she's she'll always be a candidate to win majors, and she will remain on top of the on top of the um, of the of the women's game along with two or three others. I don't see her uh, all of a sudden regressing considerably in her results the way you know the way Hingis did for a little while. Uh, when uh, when when the other players came around, but so I I'm looking at a very interesting year on the women's side. But judging from uh, from the second week of the men's draw, uh, it doesn't look that interesting to me. The 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 second week of the of the men's draw was a bit uh, slow, to be honest with you. I mean, Djokovic's quality uh, that he put out, that he put forth on the court was the best thing to watch in that second week of man's draw, but the rest was, was not very entertaining. The first week of the man's draw was much more entertaining. Whereas on the women's side, you got some uh, really interesting uh, players that can, that's going to push the envelope in the second weeks. Okay. I got to follow up on the, the Shreon tech question and the power balance on the WTA tour. And, and so, you know, we're always looking for that rivalry. You know, what's what becomes the new rivalry that sticks? You know, maybe Rabakina Sabalenka is going to be it. Maybe Rabakina or Sabalenka will play Sviantec in, in big tournaments later this year. You know, in terms of gauging, you know, can another player rise to the level that Sviantec uh, established and, and achieve some staying power? Is there like a tournament, a major tournament that stands out in your mind this year? Like, oh, if Rabakina does well at the French or, oh, if Sviantec can start doing well at Wimbledon, like the, like that could really reset uh, the power structure and how we see the very top of the WTA tour. Like, you know, in terms of uh, two players like staying at the top, you know, it's it's been the past few years, you know, Barty in 2021. Sviantec in 2022, you know, we have one player at the top firmly and the rest of the field was chasing. Um, in terms of having, you know, two players staying there at the top, you know, whether it's Rabakina achieving like long-term consistency, you know, now that she's made a second major final, backed up what she did at Wimbledon with this run in Melbourne or Sabalenka now winning a major title. And you think that, you know, oh, now the major titles are going to flow for her. Uh, is there like a tournament or a or a scenario or a matchup uh, that you think like if this happens, this could point the way toward a rivalry or at least like a multiplayer power base existing at the very top as opposed to just one player lording herself over the rest of the WTA tour? Yes, I think the two names you mentioned, Rybakina and, and Sabalenka, are definitely two candidates to to uh, to create uh, rivalries at the top, but uh, but to really um, make it fun, entertaining, and colorful. I would like to see Sakari do 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 better in the do better in terms of better than what she has done so far in the majors. But more than that, I would like to see uh, players like Osaka come back and do well. I would like to see Azarenka remain in the form that she showed in this tournament. And these are well-known names. And uh, but you know by the by the, these are names that are not unfamiliar to to the, to the casual fan, not to us. But I'm talking to to the to the person who maybe tunes in once or twice to tennis during over over the year. And uh, you know that it would be good if um, if names like Osaka and uh, Azarenka or even Andrescu could find their form and start pushing the t- you know start pushing the top names because then you would have a nucleus of six to seven players 
uh, along with the with the with the names that are uh, that are on top now, who would be able to uh, who would be able to challenge and create that uh, that atmosphere where we see the same six or seven names face each other in the semifinals, in finals of majors, and I think that would create interest a lot. I I, I like the I like depth. I love uh, watching new players emerge, but on, in the name of tennis, in the name of general, you know, creating general interest in tennis. It would be nice if those six or seven names could now start uh, consistently showing up at the finals and semifinals of 1000s and, and majors. Well, we're going to see how all of these plot points and more unfold in the 2023 tennis season. First major of the year in the books. We now head into February and you know the road to Indian Wells and Miami. It's going to be a fascinating journey. So Mert Artunga couldn't have asked for a better analyst, a better guest to unpack the Australian Open uh, Women's and Men's Singles Championships and the Men's and Women's Tournaments in Melbourne. Mert Dertunga, thanks for coming back and joining us on the Tennis Thank with you an Accent podcast.